Hello and welcome to Geopod, a podcast where we look at all things spatial. It may not be rocket science, but it's geoscience. This week we'll be speaking to Luke Mann, who went from studying geoinformatics to a career in data science. He'll tell us about what it's like to work in industry and what skills he thinks are important to brush up on. Enjoy! So just to start off, can you please tell us how and why you decided to study geoinformatics? I don't know, a lot of people will always say that getting into the field of geoinformatics was a mistake, but not a bad mistake, a good mistake. And how I'm, what I mean by that is it just happened by accident, right? And I think for me, it's also been like that. It's just, it was just I fell into the right space at the right time, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but how it happened was I was initially intrigued by the field of informatics. So I was trying to get into informatics at UP. And then I found out that I needed to do all of those business kind of things. And I needed to do business management and accounting and so forth. And um, yeah, so it wasn't really, that's not what it intrigued me. And especially because like I come from Indian family, so they really promote that whole business thing. <laughs> yeah, so and just because I was like being rebellious to some to some sort, I decided now nah, I'm not going to do any business stuff. doesn't intrigue me. Uh, and then I stumbled upon geoinformatics. It's actually an honest student at an open day who introduced me to it. And she she sold it to me well because she told me that she earns like 8,000 rand and she's an intern. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, and then she also told me that it's one of the only BSc degrees that you can actually just do and then you can get a job after. So my intention was just to study my degree and then leave. And then everything after that also happened by accident. So that's how I stumbled into geoinformatics. Sounds like a very um, rewarding accident. Um, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about where you work now and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Okay, so I'm currently employed at the CSR in the Next Gen Enterprises uh, cluster and I work in the Spatial Information Systems Unit. So uh, what I do there is mostly, I'm a, I'm a student at the CSR, so I focus a lot on my studies, but my studies overlap with my work. I'm avidly invo- involved in the Oceans and Coastal Information Management System. Most of my work on a day-to-day basis involves coastal flood modeling, basically by making use of storm surge models and sea level rise models. Yeah, so that's on a day-to-day basis. Currently involved in another project which involves the tracking of ship vessels. So we're trying to interrogate where specific ships have moved to and where they will move to and what their history has been. And that gets sold. Well, some of our stakeholders are the the Navy of South Africa. um, And we're slowly moving upwards into Africa. So Mozambique, Angola, and so forth in another project called Marco South. And then... um, my master's overlaps a lot of my work where I am actually investigating leading indicators for harmful algal blooms. So yeah, it's talking to birds at one stone because after I'm done with the master's, it will be integrated into our ocean and coastal information management system. You mentioned that you're doing your master's. What are you doing your master's in? Uh, it's a program at UP as well. It's called MIT Big Data Science. And my topic, as I've mentioned, is determining leading indicators for harmful algal bloom. So um, environmental leading indicators. And that is only using remotely sensed uh, data. So weather data, like wind, wind speeds, wind direction, sea surface temperature. 
and then to measure the harmful alkyl blooms, we make use of Sentinel-3 data. So we derive a chlorophyll product from there. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing for that. So how did you go from geoinformatics into the field of data science? Okay, I don't think that they are unrelated. So I think geoinformatics is like a subset of data science. Data science is a big, vague uh, term and a lot of people just use it as a buzzword. So you can call, some people call data science like what a DBA would do, database administrator would do. Other people refer to data science as a, a person who, uh, a data scientist is a person who applies machine learning. But I strongly believe that data science includes a big part of mathematics, data analysis, stats, and some computer science, all of which uh, geoinformatics requires as well. So I don't think they're independent, and I do think that geoinformatics has a lot of data analytics involved, which is strongly involved in data science, so it overlaps. Okay. And then you did mention that you work with the coastal data and ships. Okay. Yes. Um, why did you decide to go into that particular field, that section of um, what you do? And how is it working with different stakeholders that you work with? Okay. So first question regarding how did I end up doing coastal work? At the CSR, we embrace a lot of different projects. And one of the major projects that we're currently working on is the Oceans and Coastal Information Management System. Because of that, I've been thrown into doing a lot of coastal information management, but it's not limited to that. So there's a lot of people working on health information management systems, other people working on terrestrial, I mean, terrestrial information management systems. I think it's just because more resources were, were allocated to oceans and coast at the moment. Um, that's how I ended up there. Second question is what? Um, how is it working with different stakeholders? Okay, so a lot of our stakeholders are from government or from the Navy. It's, it's quite interesting working with them because we actually see some major findings. So last week there was actually a vessel um, that threw someone overboard um, and they were found somehow to have thrown someone overboard. It was a reported case and the Navy contacted our team with regards to uh, all of the ships that are moving in a specific direction at a specific speed. Um, and they actually found that one of the ships, uh, one of those ships actually were, were guilty of, of committing that uh, act. And so all of the people on board, which were seven of them, they were all charged with, ass with assault and um, uh, attempted murder. Yeah, it's interesting because you get to see some of those outputs. We also work on this part, one of the subset, subsets of the, of the information management system, which refers to recovery. Um, yeah, so recovery and uh, like it's a system that aims to save people that are in danger or uh, vessels that are out at sea that have been run out of petrol and so forth. And at our stakeholder workshops, they always point to that system and all of the benefits from it because they found uh, a lot of people using that system, people that have been in the ocean, trapped in the ocean and just floating around. So they found a lot of people using that system, um, using that uh, specific system which is quite satisfying so it's it's good to to see that our system is being used and it's really yeah it's satisfying to see that our stakeholders actually appreciate it you know does that answer the question <laughs> yes 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 thank you very much okay it really sounds like you actually enjoy your it sounds like you enjoy your job and what you do and everything so i think just the questions i have about your job is well job hunting 
in is how did you find your current job? My current job, uh, well, I found my current job just by networking well, I would say, <laughs> and uh, working hard at university. But also, I think my job search was about being proactive, right? So don't focus on, on oh, you know, I'm just in my honors year now, I'll be, I'll be working, or I'm just in my third year now, I'll look for a job next year. It's just about making as many connections as possible prior to that. I like to think of the job application process or the job finding a job process in like three steps and it's like application and then interviewing and then actually accepting an offer right and then during that during the period where you're actually looking for a job you want to look for stuff that actually interests you right and then you need to apply through platforms that are that are well recognized so i like to i, I don't like to throw the through some companies under the bus but a lot of companies do when you apply for a job, you filtered by an AI, just basically scanning through your CV and making sure that you actually fit that job. So as opposed to going through specific companies when applying for a job, I think it's important to apply directly to the company. That's the first thing. And making sure that it's something you want to do and making sure that you truly believe that those skills, your skills fit their job specifications. Then, the second part, when you're actually interviewing, it's important to get a feel for, for the company's culture before just diving into it. So sometimes you might get an offer, but you don't think that you fit that company well. And it's important to weigh those options when you are interviewing. And then finally, accepting when you have to accept your offer, uh, it's also you need to weigh the pros and cons of your contract and what offers being posed to you. So I wouldn't jump into the first job offer that you get just because you got this job offer now. I mean, well, if you're in the, in the circumstances where you really need a job, then you have to do that. But um, if, you, if you have options, you need to weigh all of those options before diving into something because I think finding a job, is a, it's always a long-term commitment, right? You don't want to go, go there and then realize this is not what you want and you have to resign after three months. So yeah, that's what I believe. Yeah, that's actually quite good. I mean, I feel you've also touched on my next question, which is going to be the, the do's and the do nots of job hunting. So we've obviously just heard the do's. What did you yeah. say the, the do nots of job hunting are? <laughs> I'd say the, the first thing that I also pointed this out earlier is that just don't just apply through just these random websites, you know, actually go to the, actually go to the site, that, I mean, the company that you want to apply it and do that. I say, I think another don't of, of, of the job finding process would be, you need to not just dive into something. So I said that as well, but I mean, you, you, you need to make sure that this is what you want and this is what, where you want to be, you know? Yeah, just going back to earlier now where you said you do a lot of networking and things. And I must say, I've been to a few conferences with you and I've seen you network. You definitely have a skill for that. What would you say for people who are not so confident or comfortable networking? What would you say they can do just to introduce themselves to other people? I think the first thing, so say, say for instance, you, don't, you just don't have that, that confidence in you, right? And you have this very introverted personality, which yeah. I believe I had a very introverted personality during my schooling uh, career. But after that, when I got to varsity, I think, you just need to spread your wings and, and take the risk because the worst thing a person can say is no, right? You can, the worst thing you can get from someone is a, not a conversation, 
right? So I think that's the first part is just getting yourself out there and talking, whether it's awkward or not, you get better at it. And if you're not comfortable reaching out to people in person as yet, or don't have the opportunity to do so, uh, we have platforms that you now can engage with people. I think LinkedIn is a strong platform. You can just send someone an inbox message and then you get a conversation with them and you don't know where that will lead you. And then at the same time, as, as, as wild as Twitter may be, <laughs> there's a lot of knowledge to come from people on Twitter. I think there's also a good place to just build your network and get in touch with people in your, in your domain. And sometimes those people actually, you'll just find them and you'll be so grateful that you have because they give you an unlimited amount of opportunities. Um, and then also not to forget your, your lecturers and your supervisors. Um, they know a lot of people and can introduce you to a lot of people. And it's important that you engage with your lecturers and your supervisors and make sure that they know you. Because if they know you, then, then you know a lot, of, a lot more people. <laughs> I think it's interesting now that you mentioned about lecturers. Um, if you don't mind, do you mind just giving us a little history or a story to how you and Graham got to know each other from lecturer to working with him? Okay, between Graham and I, I think I already got to know Graham during my honors year and it was only just for a semester. I didn't even choose a topic with him, but I, but I chose my topic in the right domain at the right time with Victoria and Serena. Um, and they've blessed me with many opportunities thereafter as well. <laughs> but with Graham, we had to actually develop a, a web application that was, that was uh, an internet GIS. And, um, I just went to him for constant advice on what to do and how to get where I need to be um, and what and found out exactly what he was looking for. And I think that's what you need to do for with all your lecturers. If you find out what they're looking for and you give them what they're looking for, then they'll be quite proud of your, your, your accomplishments and your end products. And after I did this product for, for Graham, I was offered my job at the CSR, which I was very fortunate for. And it was merely because I demonstrated the skills that they required at the CSR at the very moment in time. So that's how I shifted from one of Graham's students to actually one of his colleagues. That's quite interesting. Just the, the last question from my side is, your technical abilities are quite high. What did you do to teach yourself to be more technical? Because um, I've heard a funny story about how you started a hackathon and then you, you gave up 20 minutes later but now look at you being quite versed in the language of coding. So what did you do to become more technical? Okay. So yeah, that's, that was a funny story and, and Victoria can vouch for that one. And you can also vouch for all of the coding messes I made during my, my third year project in, in my undergrad degree. <laughs> I think a big part of, of actually having to just, is having to just um, start, start reading and start doing. So a good base framework for me was actually this website called Free Code Camp. Um, and I vouch for it every day because of how powerful it is and how good of a job they've done at teaching people how to code. Yeah, that's, that's one thing that I've used very much. Uh, and then other things that I've used as I got a bit more familiar with the coding environment was all of those Udemy courses that are available for around 100 Rand. Um, but there are tons of free resources, and I think the most important part about just is just to is just to dive into into something and 
try and build something that you want to build. And after that, you actually have learned a new skill and you've built something cool. Uh, that's, that's how I approached it. There are many other ways where you can be forced into it by your university or your school. Um, <laughs> so that, that's a good way of learning how to code. But I think the, the more interesting way is actually to build something that you really want to build. Find the tools, just Google how to do something and you, and you figure it out. Yeah, gee, no, it's quite nice to hear that because I know at the moment I'm busy teaching myself some Python and I'm obviously doing a, a UDME course on Python. So what's it, uh, from a zero to hero in Python. Yeah, so I find that. <laughs> yeah, they're very good. They honestly are. Yeah, it's, it's a good course. I want to ask if you can maybe tell us what a typical workday looks like for you. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take Mondays, <laughs> just because I feel like Mondays are the busiest one. So basically, I think we always just have the stand up on a Monday, um, and that's just to to focus on what we've done last week, what we're doing today, what we're doing during this entire week, and we follow like we kind of follow an agile Scrum method, but it's not a rigid agile focus. So we don't do a daily stand up. So we do our weekly stand-ups so it's that's an hour in the morning and then yeah then just get to my computer and start coding for the rest of the day i suppose and then if there are any other any other meetings that come up during the day those are the ones i, I usually attend it's a pretty boring day for for the average person just watching me well, it's not really boring for myself <laughs> and then if i have to do some research then of course i have to have more meetings and just discuss with whoever's working with me, um, how I'd be doing specific things or how they'd be doing specific things. Um, and if I'm working in a team on a specific project, then we have frequent meetings that would be like daily. So I'd have two meetings on a Monday just to catch up with my, the second one being um, one way where I have to actually just catch up with my team or plan who's doing what part of a project. Yeah, so that was, that was while I was at the office. Uh, things have changed a lot since the lockdown. <laughs> and I think, um, now we focus on having a, not a really a stand-up, but a feedback me uh, meeting on a Friday, and that was this morning. So we just talk about what we've been doing and what we will be doing in the during the lockdown, I suppose, and what, how, how things have changed and so forth. Just catch up and touch base. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty basic day, I would say, for anyone watching, but very much interesting for someone doing the work. That's great. I think it's. Very much the same as my days as well. Also start yeah. Monday morning <laughs> with a meeting with Cameron Azile usually to see what is the situation for the upcoming week. Exactly. exactly. Uh, so the last question we have, at the moment, what is some of your favorite tools to use that you would suggest someone should check out? Okay. So I'm going to speak from um, GIS development perspective if that's fine yes that's perfect okay so i think if you're doing jazz dev work obviously you're really going to be deep into using python and all of the tools that surround python uh, including flask or django those are my favorite tool if i'm doing web development which is a lot of jazz development work takes place over the web but i can't neglect tools like QGIS. Uh, this even though i've like done a lot of dev work I still always fall back into, into QGIS all the time. 
just to verify processing chains, sometimes use some of the tools and you can interface with those tools in Python as well, which I didn't know before this year. And that was quite nice. So I could, I could actually interface with QGIS tools from outside of QGIS and integrate them into, into big workflows. Um, and a lot of those tools are written in, in, in C or C++ and that makes them very, very quick and very fast in comparison to using your own Python logic. Yeah, so I'm very appreciative of, 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 of the QGIS community. And then also the typical Postgres and PostGIS combination is really powerful for, for, for GIS work. And then I see some real, in, in, in Advocacy, we've done a lot of, um, a lot of object-based uh, and pixel-based image detection. And I think those are very powerful and gave me a strong base for, for image detection. And I think using Python libraries like scikit-learn or what's the other one, OpenCV, you can do really nice image detection and build your own models. Sometimes ends up much more accurate than using pre-built software. But I'm, I'm not hating on any of the pre-built software out there. I think those developers have done good work. I just think that sometimes you really need to refine those models and build them for your own use case. No, but thank you for this. And um, we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode of Geopod. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Geopod. And if you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend to tell a friend. And remember, it's not rocket science, but it's geoscience. Bye now.